Chapter Eleven of the Four Faces by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eleven concerns Mrs. Stapleton. Ten days had passed since the events I had set down in the previous chapter, and still no clue of any kind had been obtained to the robbers at Holt or the perpetrators of the outrage at the house in Grafton Street nor indeed had any light been thrown upon the mystery of the forged telegram while the incident of the discovery of the charred body of a murdered woman among the debris of the house in maresfield gardens destroyed by fire on christmas eve had to all intents been entirely forgotten in the firelight in a small room leading out of the large library dulcie and i sat and talked perched on the broad arm of a giant padded chair, swinging her small, gray-spatted feet to and fro, she glanced at me moodily, replying in monosyllables to most of my remarks. Presently I rose with a gesture of annoyance and began to pace the floor. It was not a comfortable atmosphere by any means, metaphorically. In point of fact, Dulcie and I quarreled. We had quarreled during our afternoon walk over the hard-frozen snow to a neighboring hamlet to take a deserving widow a can of soup, and old Captain Barnacle in Wheatsheaf Lane a promising Christmas pudding. The cause of our quarrel was a curious one. Though Aunt Hannah appeared to have overcome her belief concerning the telegram she had felt so certain I had sent, I felt that she was now prejudiced against me. Why, heaven only knew! Her manner towards me, as well as her expression, and the way she spoke to me, all betrayed this. Women dislike being proved in the wrong even more than men do, and the conclusion I had come to was that Aunt Hannah would never forgive my having, in a sense, made her eat her words and look ridiculous. It was on the subject of Aunt Hannah, then, that Dulcie and I had begun our quarrel, for Dulcie had stood up for her when I condemned her that I condemned her rather bitterly, I admit. From that we had presently come to talk of Mrs. Stapleton, for whom Dulcie had suddenly developed a most extraordinary infatuation. On the morning that Dick, on his way to the station, had passed Mrs. Stapleton in her car, Mrs. Stapleton had called at Holt and asked to see Dulcie. At that moment Dulcie was in the train with Aunt Hannah on her way to London in response to the telegram. The widow had then asked to see Aunt Hannah Challoner, and then Sir Roland. Upon hearing that all three were absent from home, she had asked if she might come into the house to write a note to Dulcie, and the maid who had opened the door to her, the butler and footman having, as we know, gone into Newbury, had politely but firmly refused to admit her, declaring that she had orders to admit nobody whomsoever. This refusal had apparently annoyed Mrs. Stapleton a good deal and on the same evening she had called again, and again asked to see Dulcie, who by that time had returned. It was while she was alone with Dulcie in her boudoir that Sir Roland and Dick and I had returned to Holt, and that the stranger, whom we knew to have been Lord Logan's son, had been discovered in the hiding-hole. Mrs. Stapleton had remained with Dulcie for over an hour, and during that hour it was that she had apparently cast a spell of her personality over Dulcie. It was on the subject of this infatuation of Dulcie's that Dulcie and I had ended by quarreling rather seriously. "'I won't hear a word said against her,' Dulcie suddenly declared impetuously, kicking her heel viciously against the chair. "'I think she is the most fascinating woman I have ever met, and the more you abuse her the more I shall stand up for her. 
So there. Abuse her? I answered irritably. When did I abuse her? Repeat one word of abuse that I have uttered against her. You know quite well that I haven't said a syllable that you can twist into abuse. All I have said is that I mistrust her, and that I think it a pity you should forever be metaphorically sitting on her skirts, as you have been during the past few days. And you don't call that abuse? Dulcie retorted. Then tell me, what do you call it? I myself like Mrs. Stapleton. Up to a point, I answered, evading the question. She is capital company and all that, but... But what? Dulcie asked quickly, as I hesitated. But who is she, and where does she come from? How is it that nobody about here, and apparently nobody in town either, knows anything at all about her? Such an attractive-looking woman, young, apparently well-off, and a widow. Surely somebody ought to know something or other about her if she is quite, well, quite all right. It's most singular that she shouldn't have any friends at all among our rather large circle of acquaintance. I shall tell her just what you have said about her, Dulcie exclaimed quite hotly. I never thought you were that kind, Michael, never. You pride yourself upon being broad-minded. You have often told me so. And yet because Tom, Dick, and Harry don't know all about poor Mrs. Stapleton, who her husband was, who her parents were, and where she comes from, you immediately become suspicious and begin to wonder all sorts of horrid things about her. "'My dear Dulcie,' I said, becoming suddenly quite calm, so anxious was I to soothe her at any cost, for I hated our falling out like this. "'You put words into my mouth I never spoke, and thoughts into my mind which never occurred to me. I have said only one thing, and I shall say it again.' I mistrust Mrs. Stapleton, and I advise you to be on your guard against her. The door opened at that moment, and Charles, entering, announced, Mrs. Stapleton. Oh, Connie, how glad I am you've come, Dulcie burst out, jumping off the arm of the big chair impetuously, and hurrying forward to meet the widow, who at once embraced her affectionately. We were just this instant talking about you. Isn't that strange? And I hope not saying nasty things, as I have reason to believe some of my friends do, Mrs. Stapleton answered with a charming smile, casting a careless glance at me. But, of course, I can't imagine you or Mr. Barrington saying anything unpleasant about anybody, she added quickly. You are both much, much too nice. This was heaping coals of fire upon me, and I believe I winced as Dulcie's eyes met mine for a brief instant, and I noticed the look of scorn that was in them. She did not, however, repeat to Mrs. Stapleton what I had just said about her, as she had threatened to do. Instead she slipped her arm affectionately through the young widow's, led her over to the big armchair, made her sit down in it, and once more perched herself upon its arm. "'Ring for tea, Mike, like a dear,' she said to me. Her tone had completely changed. Once more she had become her own delightful self. This sudden bolt-fast did not, I must admit, in the least surprise me, for I knew what a child of mood she was, how impulsive and impetuous, and I think I loved her the more because she was like that. We now formed, indeed, quite a merry trio. By the time tea was finished Connie Stapleton's magnetic personality must, I think, have begun to affect me to some extent, for I found myself wondering whether, after all, I had not been mistaken in the opinion I had formed that she was a woman one would be well advised not to trust too implicitly, become too intimate with. "'And your jewels, dear,' she suddenly asked, 
as though the recollection of the robbery had but at that instant occurred to her. "'Have you recovered any of them? Have the police found any clue?' "'Yes,' Dulcie answered at once. "'The police have a clue, though, as yet, none of the stolen things have been recovered.' "'Indeed!' I exclaimed. "'Why, Dulcie, you never told me that. What is it? What is the clue?' "'I forgot to tell you. At least I should have told you. But you've been so snappy all the afternoon that I thought there was no need,' Dulcie answered equivocally. "'Well, the clue is merely this. When Churchill—that's the head gardener, you know,' she said to Mrs. Stapleton, "'was sweeping away the snow in the drive at the back of the house, that narrow drive which leads down the lane that joins the main road to Newbury, just by Stag's Leap, she saw something shining on the ground. He picked it up and found it was a buckle, set in diamonds, as he thought, so when he brought it to me, of course, he was tremendously excited. He made sure it was one of the stolen bits of jewelry. As a matter of fact, it was one of a set of very old paste buckles which belonged to my mother, and those buckles were among the stolen things. When did he find it? Mrs. Stapleton asked, interested. Why, only a few hours ago. It was just after lunch when he came to me, and he had then only just found it. You see, the ground had been covered with snow ever since the day of the robbery. That was the last day we hunted. Did the gardener say anything else? Had he any theory to account for the buckle being there? Again it was Mrs. Stapleton who put the question. None, Connie, Dulcie answered. At least, yes, she corrected. He has a sort of theory, but I don't think much of it. That narrow drive is rarely used, you know. The gate into the lane is nearly always locked. It was unlocked and the gate set open the day the hounds met here in order to save people coming from the direction of Stag's Leap the trouble of going round by the lodge. I don't think all the same that many people came in that way. I don't see much theory in that, I observed dryly. Somehow I could not shake off the feeling of irritability that my quarrel with Dulcie during the afternoon had created. Naturally, because I haven't yet come to the theory part, Dulcie answered sharply, noticing the tone in which I spoke. I am coming to it now. Churchill said he happened to come along that drive between about eleven o'clock and half-past on the morning of the meet. That would be just about the time when everybody was at the breakfast, and he distinctly remembers seeing a car drawn up close to the shrubbery. There was nobody in it, he says, but as far as he can recollect it was drawn up at the exact spot where he found the buckle this afternoon. Of course there was no snow on the ground then. Has he any idea what the car was like? As Connie Stapleton made this inquiry, I happened to glance at her. I could only see her profile, but there was, I thought, something unusual in her expression, something I did not seem to recollect having ever seen in it before. It was not exactly a look of anxiety. Rather, it was a look of extreme interest, a singular curiosity. Churchill is most mysterious and secretive on that point, Dulcie answered. I asked him to tell me what the car was like, if he had any idea whose it was. He said it was a grey car, but he wouldn't tell me more than that. He said he believed he had hit the line and would soon be on a hot scent. Try as I would, I couldn't get him to say another word. He asked if he might have this afternoon off, and gave me to understand he wanted to go into Newbury. I believe he is going to try and do a little detective work, she ended with a laugh but as I say, I don't put much faith in any theory Churchill may have formed. Well, my dear Dulcie, if you succeed in recovering your jewelry, you know I shall be the first to congratulate you, Mrs. Stapleton said, taking Dulcie's hand and patting it affectionately. 
It is too dreadful to think all those lovely things should have been stolen from you, things of such exceptional value to you because of their long association with your family. Oh, how stupid of me, she suddenly said, interrupting herself. I have forgotten to tell you what I have come to see you for. I have some friends from town dining with me tonight. Some of them are going to stay the night at the Rook. The others will return to town in their cars, and I want you and Mr. Barrington to join us. It's quite an informal little dinner party, so I hope you will forgive my asking you in this off-handed way and at such short notice. The fact is, two people telegraphed at lunchtime that they wouldn't be able to come, so I thought that if I motored over here I might be able to persuade you to come instead. Will you come, dear? And you, Mr. Barrington, do say yes. Don't disappoint me when I have come all this way out to try to persuade you. If I were not really anxious that you should join us, I should have telephoned or telegraphed. "'Of course. Why, I should love to come!' Dulcie exclaimed without a moment's hesitation. "'And Mike will come, too. I know he will.' "'You mean he won't be able to let you be away from him so long,' Connie Stapleton said mischievously, and there was something very peculiar in her laugh. It flashed across me at that moment that, for an instant or two, she looked a singularly wicked woman. Dulcie smiled self-consciously, but said nothing. I knew that she rather disliked any joking allusion being made to our engagement. "'May I use your telephone, darling Dulcie?' Connie Stapleton asked suddenly. "'I want to tell the hotel people that we shall be the original number. I told them after lunch that we might be too short.' Dulcie had a telephone extension in the little room which adjoined her boudoir, and some moments later Mrs. Stapleton was talking rapidly into the transmitter in her smooth, soft voice. She spoke in a tongue that neither of us understood, and when, after she had conversed for over five minutes, she hung up the receiver, Dulcie called out to her gaily. "'Why, Connie, what language was that?' "'Polish,' she answered. "'Didn't you recognize it? Of course you know that I am Russian.' "'Russian? Why, no, I hadn't the least idea. I always thought you were not English, although you speak English perfectly.' I remember wondering, the first time I met you, to what nationality you belong, and I came to the conclusion that possibly you were Austrian. No, Russian, Mrs. Stapleton repeated. I have a Polish maid who speaks hardly any English, and I was talking to her. And now, my dear, I really must be going. What is the exact time? It was five minutes past six. Dulcie pressed the electric button. Mrs. Stapleton's car at once, she said when the footman entered. A few minutes later Mrs. Stapleton's long gray Rolls-Royce was gliding noiselessly down the avenue over the snow, its taillights fast disappearing into the darkness. End of chapter 11 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com